So we're in our second week of Advent, and we, we celebrate Advent here every year uh, between the, the four weeks between Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, and we do that because I appreciate how it draws us in to consider some of the more intentional themes of Christmas. I mean, it's, it's truly is, um, it, it's, a, it's a time of year that the church, I mean, intensely can be focused on what we have as a result of Jesus's coming to us. And so it's important, I think, in, in a time where things are so commercialized, everything's about putting out a new product, you know, you got the, a, 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 new, a new toy to buy, a new, a new thing that you want, and it's always being pre- presented around this time of year. Uh, so that it it meets the Christmas rush and, and is is part of the Christmas demand. I, I think it's important for us to stop and just think about what is really important, what is really substantial about why we celebrate. Last week we started with our focus on the gift of hope, and as we talked about hope, we weren't looking at hope in the terms that that we typically think of hope in our world. It was it's not just an optimistic feeling that everything's going to be okay. It is everything's going to be okay. But it's not just a wishful thought. It's not just a, a desire for good things to come in the future. It is, but it's not just based on our experience or what we want. It's based on the confident promises. That, it's the confidence that comes in, in, in knowing that God's promises will be fulfilled. In His first advent, Christ proved for us, God proved for us that He is going to complete all that He has said He is going to complete. He is going to bring it to fruition. And we look forward to a day, not of some intermediary time where God is going to visit with us in, in this world, but in the end when, when Christ returns finally and, and, and makes all things new and peace reigns. We look forward to that time and our hope will be satisfied in that time. Our hope will become sight. That future faith will become sight and we will have all that we long for. But today we turn and we turn from the idea of focusing on the gift of hope and we're going to be studying from Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 through 9 and we're going to focus on the gift of love. And I would encourage you right now, if you, if you don't have a Bible to, to, to grab the Bible in front of you, I tried this out on the, the, the first service. I wanted to practice on them first because I, I'm re, I'm presenting this differently than it is my notes because of just the way I, I think it'll be helpful. But if you don't have a Bible, open the, open one of the Bibles in the back of the chair. If you don't have your own, take that with you. Um, but Isaiah chapter 42, I would encourage you to have it there because you won't be able to follow along. We're not going to read these through and then, and then, um, deal with them. We're going to walk all the way through it. And so I would just encourage you to have that in front of you so that you could follow along and see God's word so that you don't just think it's me up here making this stuff up. Although I probably do that sometimes and don't mean to, but today I won't. So, <clears throat> so today we're talking about the gift of love. And here's the thing about love. We all want it. Everybody wants it. Everybody that has ever lived or ever will live wants to be loved. We want love. It's a basic human desire that we have have been designed with. It's down into the core and depths of who we are. It's, It's written in our DNA. It's just central to who we are. We want to be loved. We want it so badly we'll go to great lengths to experience it. We'll do all kinds of things that that maybe aren't necessarily the best of things, but because we want it so desperately, we'll do all kinds of things to, to receive it. We'll perform for it. We'll, we'll, we'll act in ways that we think will make us be loved, that make us loved by someone else. We'll, we'll do things that, that we think in some way will impress or some way will earn us the, the affections and the love of someone else. We'll compromise values. 
We will do things that we know aren't lies and we know aren't right because we want to be loved. We'll compromise the things that we know are important, the things that we value in our life, if we think it'll get us loved. We want to be loved. We'll settle even for the emotion of love over the substance of love because we want it so desperately. I mean, we, we, we see this happen in a number of unhealthy ways in our culture where people will remain in abusive relationships. They'll stick it out because they want love so desperately they'll just settle for even harmful situations if they, if they get a glimpse or even just feel like or think they might be loved. And it plays itself out in a number of different ways in our lives. But here's the problem. Here's the problem we face. We all want it. But every one of us, Every last one of us look for it in all the wrong places. We're all looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. I was hoping you'd catch it. Some of you may never heard that song. I don't feel so bad now. Searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Hoping to find a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day that I discover another heart looking for love. You see, we all want this. It, it resounds in us. And, and I think, I think, I think they got it right. I think the songwriter got it right. That we're all looking for it and we're all looking for it in the wrong places. What I, what I think he missed is that we're surrounded by people who are all looking for love. You found us. We're here. Every last one of us are looking for this. We're longing for it. We want to be loved and we want to know with certainty that we're loved. You can hear it all over, all over the place, around us. Everything we do, we long to be loved. We sing about it in, in our songs and we write about it in our stories and we, and we imagine it and we romanticize it and we make it this big, uh, this big thing that we build up in our lives that we give ourselves to this pursuit of love. Welcome to the world. You found it. Bless the day you found it that you found other people just like you looking to be loved. We're all faced with the same problem. And we're looking in all the wrong places. We're looking into the faces of people around us thinking that they can love us in the way we long to be loved. Asking them to do something that they're not truly equipped to do. Expecting of something of situations and circumstances and things in this world. Asking of them things they're incompetent and capable of doing the problem is that we're looking for love. We're not first going to the source in which we would find this love we long for. We long for this love. But where will we find it? Like hope, and we summarized it this way last week, and I want to make sure that this thread just pervades this Advent series. Like hope, we we pursue love, but when we pursue love as an end in itself, when that becomes the object of our pursuit, just to find love, we will miss love. 
We will only know this love. We will only experience this love when we look to the source and His name is Jesus. Until we go to the source, until we find the love of God in Jesus Christ, we will only ever be able to look. We will only ever be looking into the wrong places. But today, as we read and study from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, I am praying for you. I am pleading with God on your behalf that you will know, that you will, will be made certain, that you will find out today that you are loved supremely and powerfully and divinely loved that you don't have to look in another place that you have been given love that you are receiving love and 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 there is no better place no better time i think in the christmas season than to see god's love for us unfold and so we're going to study this passage and i'm praying that you will see it we're going to read in beginning and actually in isaiah Chapter 41, verse 29, because you need to see the contrast. You need to see the context. But let me, let me just begin reading and, and, and you follow along. Isaiah 41, chapter, chapter 41, verse 29, behold. So he's calling attention. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What is empty wind? What are nothing and what are a delusion? What is he talking about? Well, the, Isaiah has, has been, has been speaking God's word about idols, about idols and, and the things that are worshiped that are little G gods, things that we build and create, created things that we exalt as if they are in some way worthy to be worshiped. And in this culture, I mean, in the, the reality is, uh, archaeologists have dug things up that dug this up and they have found that there's like over 3,000 different uh, gods in this region that would have been worshipped over the ages. 3,000 different gods that would have been exalted, but they were fake, they were false, they were created images. And God is, is presenting through Isaiah, He is saying, come to the carpet, you idols. Come, you false gods, and prove yourself. Show yourself to be powerful. See if you can stand up and do the things you promise you can do. And, and, and he knows. He already knows the outcome. And he comes to this place in verse 29 where he points out, where he says that the truth about idols. They are a delusion. They are the, the, the conception. They are the creation of a deceived mind. They are, they are the imagination of someone who doesn't know what reality is. They are a delusion. They are nothing, he says. They are metal images. and Their metal images are empty wind. They are impotent, powerless, incompetent, incapable of accomplishing anything. I, mean, I, I think it's clear he's got a very clear perspective. He's got a very clear view of what he thinks of idols. He knows what they are. And He calls us to pay attention. He calls us to, to look at them and pay attention and see what they are. Because they will always fail. They will always fumble. They will never be able to follow through. But then, immediately, He, he, he turns the page. So Isaiah didn't write the chapters and the verses. I mean, immediately he moves from saying, behold, these that are empty and worthless. And he calls us to attention, to, 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 to pay attention to something that is much different. It's bigger, more powerful. He says, behold. Chapter 42, verse 1, behold, pay attention. 
Look upon. Behold My servant whom I uphold. My chosen. The one that, the one that God Himself determined was the one that was coming to serve Him. The one that God had set apart. The one that God had elected would be His servant. Behold My servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom My soul delights. He's calling us to see this servant in contrast to these idols. He's saying, look at him. Look at him and pay attention to him. Behold him. See him with your own eyes. And so here's the thing is that we, it's difficult for us to comprehend these, these contrasts. In part because we don't live in a world anymore where we carve statues and bow before them and expect them to accomplish something for us. Now it happens still all over the world, but it's not commonplace in America. It's not commonplace for us to, <clears throat> to, to have neighbors that have statues of bulls and, and, and statues uh, that, that represent their ancestors. It's, it's, not con- it's not common for us to have neighbors whose, whose backyard is a, is a shrine built to Buddha. It's, it's just not common. And when we see it today, we're so scientifically minded, we're so modern minded, we, we automatically write it off. We, be, we, we think past it. We're too smart for it today. And so we, we think of idols as something that days gone by. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, because we are all a people who are looking for love in all the wrong places, you're sitting in, front, you're sitting in a room full of idolaters. Idolatry is nothing more than loving the wrong thing too much. Loving a good thing that's been created by God for our good. Lo- loving something that He has created as if it is Him. It's nothing more than longing to be loved by something that, that He can only accomplish. Loving being loved by someone or something in the way that He can only love us. That's, that's idolatry. It's exalting some other thing to the position only He can sit in. We are all idolaters. So we, brothers and sisters, we need to see this. We need to know this passage more than as much as anyone else. We need to know that we can quit looking. We can quit looking for love. But we can, we can quit expecting everyone else to fulfill this longing for love. We, we can quit expecting everyone else to be able to do what only God can do. And we can, we, we can be, be, begin expressing this, this love back to Him in a way that it is set in the right order so that He's first and His creation is second. And we can do this because God saw fit as He faced those who were worshiping idols. He saw fit and you see it happen in this passage. He saw fit not to crush the idolaters, but to send His servant to bless them, to provide for them, to give them what they couldn't get on their own. He's going to crush the idols. He's going to show them to be impotent and empty and powerless. And He is going to contrast that against the, the power and the presence and the provision of His servant. He's going to show it full Force on behalf of those who would worship idols. And he goes on. Behold my servant whom I uphold. 
my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so you hear him. He, he, he introduces his servant. He introduces his, his servant, the one he delights in, the one he's chosen, the one that he gives power to, that he upholds. He says, look at him. This is what he's going to do. So he goes from the introduction to begin to tell us what he's going to do. And in this, in this, this is where we find we are loved. In this, this is where we see how he's loved us. And so really, as we work our way through the next nine verses, over and over and over, you will hear of his servant. You will hear of what his servant's to do. You will see how God interacts with his servant and, and, and has designed a plan for his servant. But you will see how he has loved you. And I pray, I pray that today when you leave that you will know just how loved you have been by the one and only God, the God who created and the God who saves. In Christ, in Christ we are loved perfectly. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He could only do this if He was just Himself. Like he can only he can only bring forth justice. He can only bring forth rightness. He can he can only bring forth bring forth righteousness if he himself is righteous. Righteousness does, doesn't come out of unrighteousness. Justice doesn't come out of injustice. It, it it has to be sourced from a place of perfection, and this is where it begins. My spirit is on him. I uphold him. He is my chosen one, and he brings forth justice. He is the source of it. He loves us perfectly he's the source he brings it forth without any flaw or stain or contamination or pollution and in in no way is it defiled at all his love for you is perfect he came to do for you what you were unworthy of having done he came to to do for you and for me what we were incapable of accomplishing he came to do not what he was obligated to do. He didn't have to do anything. But he came to do what he was not obligated to do, but what he wanted to do. He came forth to bring out this perfect and undefiled, pure love for us. It comes from, from a, a, from complete perfection and pure selfless intention. And he brings us not just what we want, but he brings us exactly what we need. There's a, there's a drastic difference there. He loves us perfectly. In Christ you are loved perfectly. In, life, in Christ you are loved humbly. He goes on, verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not, he, he didn't come. Jesus didn't come. The servant didn't come to make a name for himself. We, we know Jesus worked all kinds of powerful miracles. He did all kinds of amazing things. And not once did he say, not once did he say, hey, you go tell everybody that I did this and they need to come follow me and because I'm here to make sure that my name is known. Not once did he do that. Not once did he seek to exalt himself. Not once did he try to attain position. 
In fact, we see that the exact opposite is true. Over and over and over in the Scriptures, Jesus is, is, is saying things like that He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, points out the humility that not, not, not only in what He didn't do, he didn't, go, he didn't go out as His own marketing manager and calling attention to Himself. He didn't go out trying to make a name for Himself or see Himself exalted. But what he did do is come in humble form. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 9, who, speaking of Jesus, who, so it could say Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He stepped down out of heaven. And the one who's to be served, served. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Not once did he sin. Not once did he curse anyone. Not once did he, did he do anything that deserved a criminal's death, but he was given the death of a criminal. And he didn't at one time seek to make a name for simply himself. He was always pointing glory to God the Father and seeking to love those and bless those who God sent him to love and bless. And, but the thing is, he's still exalted. In verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus is exalted. Absolutely He's exalted. He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be adored. He's worthy to be loved. We should be celebrating His birthday every year. We should be celebrating His sacrifice every year. We should be celebrating His resurrection every year. We should be praising His name at every turn of, of, of the page. But, but brothers and sisters, He didn't come to exalt Himself. He came to glorify the Father and serve you and me. He did not go out healing people simply to make a name for Himself. And, and let me just show you that from one more place. I, th I think it's made clear. But it's also the passage that shows us, that, that shows us the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah. In Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21, it says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Now, what Jesus was aware of was that Jesus was aware that His works, His teaching, His his presence was gaining a following and it threatened the religious leaders of the day. In fact, they sought to begin to destroy him. He wasn't their favorite. He was going, they, they were looking for ways to, to rid themselves of this problem, Jesus. And so being aware of this, he withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all. Not one or two, not the ones that measured up, not the ones that acted the right way, not the ones that performed well. He healed them all and ordered them not to make Him known. But it's not the only time He does this kind of thing. Don't tell anybody I'm the one. This, it says in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. You recognize that? It's Isaiah. He will not quarrel or cry out loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
he goes on, a bruised reed will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And his name, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus came and he loved you. He's loved us humbly, not seeking selfish gain in it. Not, not seeking to, to exalt himself, not seeking to make something of himself. I mean, so often in our world, people love others. Love others, quotes, love others. You see that it's not real, it's not tangible because they do it in order to get something. They long for some selfish thing to be fulfilled in them. Oh, if I love them, they'll love me and they'll do what I want them to do. And if I say all the right things and they think I love them, then they'll perform the way I want them to perform and they'll make me feel good about myself. That is sick and twisted. That is not love. That is not love. They will, they will, they will wear their love on their sleeves, making sure that everyone sees how sacrificial they are so that they make a name for themselves in the world so that people will think they're great and they're, they're worthy of adoration and appreciation. That is not love. You have been loved humbly, selflessly. He has given himself for you. If this was not true, he would have never made it out of the desert being tempted by Satan who gave him the immediate out. Just bow to me and worship. Bow before me. I'll give you everything. I'll make you king in this world. I'll make you ruler of everything you can see. And Jesus is like, no. No, you don't get it. I'm not here for myself. He has loved you purely with selfless intention, humbly, in the truest of forms. In Christ, we are loved so tenderly. A bruised reed, it says in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In direct contrast to what the rulers of the day would do or what results from idol worship, he won't break the bruised reed. He won't snuff out the smoking wick. He could. He's absolutely able to crush us. He's absolutely able to condemn us. He's absolutely able to snuff us out. And it is really fully within His right. He has every right to. He is not obligated to us in any way. And yet He won't. He won't. He refuses to. Instead, He will tend to us. He will serve us. He will protect us and ensure that we are preserved. In his book, The Bruised Reed, Richard Sibbs writes this, God sees fit that we should taste of that cup of which His Son drank so deep that we might feel a little of what sin is and what His Son's love was. So He lets us experience it. He lets us see it. He lets us catch a glimpse of it. He lets us see it. But our comfort is that Christ drank the dregs of this cup. We get a sip. It's like, it's like the, the, the juice at the, at, at communion. It's a sip. It doesn't even really quench your thirst. It doesn't even really help anything. It just, it's just, man, it's there and gone. He drank the dregs. He drank it all the way down to the backwash of the cup for us, it says. And will succor us so that our spirits may not utterly fail under that little taste of his displeasure which we may feel, brothers and sisters, listen, you are loved so much. You are loved so tenderly that this is as close to hell as you will ever be. 
you are as close to His wrath experiencing it as you will ever be. The storms of this life, the trials that we face, the difficulties that come, they are as close to ever experiencing condemnation that you will ever be in Christ. He became, Richard Sibbs continues, He became not only a man but a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not <clears throat> not be accursed. Whatever may be wished for in, all in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. He is no harsh master. Even in the even in the sips of his of his displeasure, even in the even in the tinges of his wrath that we experience, even in this even in this action in allowing us to see it, there is love and truth. We are never at one moment separated from his amazing grace. You have been loved tenderly in Christ. In Christ, we are loved permanently. Uh, he, he goes on in verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth. Who doesn't grow tired? Who doesn't grow weary? Who, who of us doesn't give up? Who, who of us doesn't sense and see the difficulty ahead of us and, and sometimes get discouraged about what we think the outcome will be? Jesus will never do this. He will never get tired. He will never look on us and think, man, they're just not getting it. I give up. Never is He going to look at you and think that. Never is He going to look at you and, 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 and think, I'm just too tired to do this. I mean, I wish it weren't true. I wish, I wish it wasn't true of, of me, of, of us. I, wouldn't, I wish it wasn't true that, 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 that there are times I'm just tired. I just don't want to deal with it. I woke up this morning. My throat's killing me. I'm feeling nasty. My, my wife has made me sick. and I, I'm just tired. Love you, baby. And in my flesh, you know what I thought? I'd rather have my head on my pillow than be here with God's people. I didn't want to come here. I didn't want to preach this message. But man, I'm encouraged because where I grow tired, He endures. Where I get discouraged because things didn't work out the way I wanted to, He never does. His love is permanent. Where mine ebbs and flows, His is always lasting. It is forever. And it will last. Even as He fulfills all that He's promised, His love will never end. It is the love that we sing of that, that never fades, that never gets tired, that never grows old, that never goes away. His love will always be. You have been loved. You are being loved permanently in Christ. In Christ, we are loved completely. I want to show you this. It doesn't stand out clearly, but again in verse 4, he says, He will grow, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the term justice is a key word 
In, in, all, in, in most of the commentaries I read, it's, it's pointed out, this is a third use of it, that the reason that Christ is coming, the reason that he's, he's, he's coming to us is to establish justice. And so we need to recognize, what does that mean? What is he doing for us? Is it just a legal thing? Is he, is he just coming to give judgment and, 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 and then stand in place of judgment? What, what does it mean? There's difficulty in translating the word out of the Hebrew but I appreciate what Ray Orland writes. He says, this word translated justice includes within its scope all our longings for a better life and a better world. All of our longings, every one of our longings for a better life and a better world. Who who of us doesn't know that there's something better? That that this place is wrecked, that there's trouble here. But but the, the things that we long for, this is the justice that Jesus is talking about. This is the justice that He's coming to provide. He goes on, a just world to Isaiah is human society as God means it to be. A human society as God means it to be with no corrupting idolatries. When we see the slums and poverty and oppression and illiteracy and pollution and human misery in all its forms, do we have the prophetic eyes to discern the meaning of it? These massive disorders prove that we are arranging human life according to idolatrous ideals. That's why we always end up shoving each other into the ground. But Jesus is coming to establish something completely different. It won't be touched by sin. It won't be stained by our flawed lives. It won't be, it won't be in any way shaped or molded because of, because of our our rebellious action toward God. In fact, in all of the new earth, in all of the new heavens, there will be one thing that remains because of the fruit of our sin. And it will be that our Savior Jesus Christ walks in flesh. You see, He came and took on flesh, not because, not because it, was, it was something to do. He did it because of our sin to provide justice in spite of our sin. And He will carry that flesh. He humbled Himself and carried that flesh for all of eternity. He's walking in humility in all of eternity so that our eyes will see Him and our hands will touch Him and we will be able to walk beside Him because He has loved us so completely and so permanently. That's what Jesus has done for you. That the one stain of sin that will last in eternity is Him in flesh. And all others will be gone. All competition to prove that we are better. All need to try to attain position before the Father. All desires that are sinful and wrong. All things that we are ashamed of that we try to hide and cover up. All of these things will be gone, but Jesus will be there in His flesh. Reminding you of how He has loved you so completely. Always and forever. Reminding you of what He's done. In Christ we are loved powerfully. He says in verse 6, I am the Lord. I'm sorry, in verse 5, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. This speaks of His power and His authority. Only God can speak things into existence. Only God is sovereign to sit and order all things. Only God can source life. Only He can breathe into people and see them live. Only God can do that. And in stark contrast to the empty idols, the empty wind, the powerless works, in Christ we have been loved powerfully.
powerfully. We have been loved actively. And we see it again all over the Scripture. And I just want to give you two verses that I would encourage you to commend to memory. John 3.16, you probably already have it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus sent? Because God so loved the world. He loves powerfully. He loves actively. First John 3.16, these two John 3.16s are so worth knowing. First John 3.16, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love. His active, beneficial sacrifice on our behalf. God's love in Christ is not empty. It's not futile. It is filled with power. It accomplishes its goals. In Christ, we are loved powerfully. In Christ, we are loved divinely. I am the Lord, verse 6 says, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Or I'm sorry, a light to the nations. We'll stop right there. This, the, the tone changes. See, up until verse 5, he was speaking to us. He was, he was talking about what the servant would do. He was calling us to look at him and see what he would do. And now he turns his attention and, he, and God, the Father, begins to speak to his Son, the servant, the Savior. And he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. See, God is doing this himself. God the Father, God the Son, this love is absolutely, completely through and through divine in nature. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't show us, it doesn't, it doesn't let us take any, any, any part of it. We are not co-laborers with him in it. We are the bruised reeds that will break under a stiff breeze. We are the smoking wicks that can be blown out by a baby's breath. We are at a loss. But God has loved us. You see, we're like the infants that, that many of you are holding in your arms right now. We're like the infants that if left to ourselves, we would be unable to protect, unable to fend for ourselves. We would be totally helpless. We, would, we, we, we are totally helpless to do this. But we're also like the infant who is loved by his parents. We're like the infant whose parents clothe and feed and protect and teach. See, that is the love of a parent. When the baby cries in the middle of the night, when stressed out because they are exhausted, you know it happens. And you get up and you go to the crib and you feed your baby. They have nothing to offer you. They only take from you. That's the divine love that the Father has for you, His child. And, and, and as he teaches you, it's like the parents who teach their child and celebrate over growth and, 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 and learning. As your child learns to take his first steps and, and as your, as your baby begins to walk and you're so excited for that moment, when he falls and stumbles, you don't get upset and, oh, you stupid kid, can't you walk yet? No. We rushed. We rush to them and we, and we laugh alongside them and we're, we're so excited that they're taking steps and we encourage them to stand up and take another one and we celebrate over it. 
And we, and we so careful and concerned for them that we, that we hold their fingers and help them learn to balance. Still not giving nothing to us. Still able to, to do nothing in return but simply hold our finger. See, this is the way God has loved you so completely. This is His divine love for you. He is walking beside you. In Christ, He is holding you up. In Christ, He is making sure that you find it to the end. In Christ, He is making sure that you are preserved. In Christ, He is not just simply letting you smolder. but In Christ, He is fanning your life back to flame. He loves you. It is divine love. It is God's love for you. In Christ we are loved beneficially. It goes on in verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He loves you for your good. It's beneficial to you, giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and, 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 and making the lame able to walk and, and empowering us to do what we couldn't do for ourselves and empowering us to, 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 to be what we couldn't be on our own. This is the love that He gives us. It's so different. It's so different than the way we so often love people. So often we love people or want to be loved by people in the way that makes us feel good. Like, I want to feel loved. I want, I want, I want to feel it. So just treat me the way I want to be loved. It's so sick and twisted when you stop and think about it. I, I, I recognize this in my own heart, my own life. I want to be loved so badly that I don't even care if you really love me. I just want you to say you do. As long as you say you do, I don't care if you back it up with action. I don't care if you really mean it or not, but it just makes me feel good. How twisted is that? But am I the only one? Just love me how I want to be loved. That's not what God does. He comes to you and does for you what you need Him to do. He loves you for what's good for you. He loves you in ways that you would long for Him to love you if you only knew all that He knows. If you were sitting in His position and could understand all of your needs, and if you could understand all the things that should be withheld from you and all the things that should be given to you, if you knew them all, you would long for Him to love you that way. And He does because He knows it. You would long for Him to love you. If you knew all He knows, you would long for Him to love you exactly as He loves you. Benefiting you, giving you good, and withholding from you that which would be harmful. In Christ we are loved unconditionally. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is My name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is, the, this is God just demonstrating His His unique sovereignty. He is the only one glorious. He is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only one that deserves to be glorified in this world. But, but look, I, I think it reveals to us something else. I think it shows us just how special this love is. It is built out of a God who knows He's glorious, who doesn't share His glory with anything, anyone else. He, he didn't give you love because you became glorious. He didn't give you love because you in some way measured up. You in some way attained position before Him. You in some way figured out how to be in front of Him. He gave you love because He is glorious. He is God. That is simply where His love is rooted in His nature. 
And Paul caught on to this. Paul understood it. He writes in Romans 5, 6-11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners. Not when we found Him. Not when we lived right. Not when we did the right things. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Because He's living, because He's no longer dead in the grave, because He's loving us actively, powerfully, completely, divinely, because He's loving us like this, there is so much more for us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's nothing in us worthy of love, yet He loves us. And it's drastically different. We tend to love people who love us, who do what we want them to do, who measure up to our standard. We look at others that, that don't match our view and we consider them unlovable. It's so drastically different because when God looks at us, we are unworthy and He is unobligated. But He works in our benefit for our good anyway. His love is unconditional. And what comfort that is today. Because I know what's going on in my heart and in my mind and I know what I want to do so often in my flesh. If He ever put a condition on it, I would lose it. We would lose it. But He loves us unconditionally. In Christ, we are loved proactively. Last verse, verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. We, we, I think we see the transition between what is to be the Old Testament and the New, new Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Behold, the former things have come to pass and now things, new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, he didn't set out a bunch of clues for us to figure out. It's not like he laid out a mystery and said, you've got to solve the mystery if you want to get this love. There's certainly a lot of clues. He was certainly pointing at a lot of things, but he was coming to us. He was acting proactively. He was coming to us and showing it to us before it was ever done, before it was ever actually accomplished. He was saying, this is coming I am loving you before you could ever love me. I am doing for you what you couldn't do before you could ever dream of trying, before you would ever think about trying. I am doing this for you and I am telling you it's coming so that you, when, when, when you get there, when you see it, when you begin to see it unfold, you won't try to take credit for it, but you will see that I have said it was going to happen. He loves proactively, not waiting for us. But loving us first. This is how you are loved in Christ. This is what He's done for you. His powerful, divine, proactive, complete, and perfect love for you. He 
loves you. You, every last one of you, every single solitary one, you are loved by God in Christ. He loves you. What are you going to do? I'm praying. I've been praying and pleading with God on your behalf that you would simply receive His love. I mean, you can't chase this. You always look for it in the wrong places on your own. You, you need Jesus. It, it, like, like, like hope. We talked about this with hope. We, if, if hope or, or, or love even becomes the object of our, our, our desires, if it becomes a thing we pursue, we miss it. But when we find Jesus, when we pursue Him, we find out how desperately we've been loved, how completely we've been loved. So I would pray that you would find Christ, that you would pursue Christ, and that you would let His, wa- let His love wash over you, that you would trust Him and believe that He loves you this way. And I pray that in response, I've been pleading with God, asking on your behalf that you would learn to love Him first. What other thing can we do in response to this great love that He's given us? What else is there to do but love Him back? This is the greatest commandment. If we would get this right, so many other things in our life, so many other things in this world would cease to exist. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love Him first. And as you try to do that, don't forget how completely, how perfectly, how tenderly, how, how, how divinely you are loved. Because every one of us will fail. None of us will love Him perfectly. None of us will love Him like He loves us. And we will still have a tendency to look for love in all the wrong places. Remember His Word and how He has loved you. Never forget, you are loved by the one and only God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for Your love for us. So grateful that we can count on it when all other things will fade and falter that Your love never will. So grateful, Father, that You saw fit to love us so so tangibly in sending Your Son. Jesus, thank You for loving us. That You would humble Yourself in the way that You have that You would serve Your Father in the way that You have, that You would serve us in the way that You have. In putting on flesh, humbling Yourself, making Yourself obedient to death, even death on a cross. I pray. I pray, God, I ask Holy Spirit, I pray that You would just in this moment, that You would impress these truths deep into the hearts of, of my brothers and sisters that we would be so moved and so motivated that we would desire to love You above all other things. That we would give our lives devoting ourselves to loving You and to finding ourselves loved by You. It's all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.